The following is a quarantine recording presented to you in a round sound. It was recorded with whatever was lying around. Hey, this is Lady Don't Take No, your weekly roundup of all of the real and none of the fake. I'm your host, Alicia Garza. This show is pro-Black, pro-queer, proudly feminist, and pro-do-what-you-like. Every week, you're going to get the best of what goes on in my head, what we loving on and what we hating on, what we might be and what we ain't going to do. Politics, pop culture, what Get Out looks like in real life with this Royals interview, honey. <laughs> we cover it all. We are recording from Oakland, California, the center of the known universe, where we are dealing with Rona and reconstruction. It's a challenging time, a changing time. It's a time of transformation. It's all the things all the time nowadays. But we're going to help you understand the dynamics of this time every single week. So be sure to tune in, tell a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We do it for the culture. So the pod is free 99 because we know that with a country in chaos, the least we could do is keep you from putting your money anywhere else than where it's needed. All the clerks want to offer you help. All the folks compliment you stuff. Our little children want to jump in your lap. Girl, I want to do that myself. Our guest this week is an educator, a DEI consultant, and the author of the recently released, critically acclaimed book, The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of MLK Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. And if you have not done so already, hurry up and go and head to your favorite local bookstore and buy this book right now. In fact, press pause, go buy the book, and come back. We'll be here. <laughs> it is so important and amazing and revealing. It is all the things. I can't tell you how pleased I am, how honored I am to have this brilliant, brilliant person on the pod today. Please welcome Anna Malika Tubbs. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for such a generous introduction. Oh, it's so good to have you here. And we always say on the pod, it's been too long, but you know what? It's always right on time. These conversations happen, especially when they need to. I am so glad to have you during Women's History Month, but we're going to talk about the future of women. We're going to get all the things. But first and foremost, let me just ask you about your quarantine life, because, you know, contrary to popular opinion, we are still in a panini, in a panoramic in a pandemic, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and there are too many people out here who are not fucking wearing their masks and staying home until you get shot up with whatever vaccine you need to get shot up with. So I got to ask you, in the spirit of letting people know that we are in a fucking panini, <laughs> <laughs> what has your quarantine life been like? And are you developing any unique habits live and direct for Miss Rona? That's such a good question. I mean, even after we get the vaccine, though, people still need to be safe. I think a lot of people right. out here getting their vaccine and thinking the rest of us are all fine. No. 
So still leave those masks on until we are told that we're ready. Uh, But no, my quarantine life, I can't believe it's been a whole year that we've been in this situation. And we've tried to focus, my husband and I, on the kind of silver linings. For us, we have a 16-month-old son, and we had so much more time with him in his first and now second year of life than we really would have um, outside of the quarantine. And so definitely not to celebrate that by any means. Obviously, it's an awful and tragic situation for so many. Uh, but we really tried to focus just on appreciating each other and spending time with our son. And now we have another one on the way, which is so, so exciting. <laughs> so we're thinking about how do we emulate the experience that our firstborn had with our secondborn as the world does start to open up a little bit more. Uh, because we just really understand even more so the importance of our loved ones and our family and our unit and just being grateful for health and happiness and our love. And in terms of, I guess, interesting routines, I've just gotten really adjusted to doing yoga online, which I hated at first. Hmm. I do a lot of yoga and I really like being in community with people when I do my practices. But Now I'm kind of just adjusting to this computer version and being on my own in my own space, which is kind of fun. I love that. And I love, (laughs) love, love that you practice yoga. Are you in a particular branch? Like, do you have some that you like more than others? I'm open to just learning all different kinds. You know, I was really into hot yoga and I don't want to say the person who is well associated with hot yoga because of how awful he is. Yeah, we know. Um, Terrible. But because of that, honestly, the, the the news that he was such a gross person, I really expanded my learning to so many other types. And I just love different practices. And I feel like each day is different. Sometimes I want an easy flow. Sometimes I want to get that cardio pumping. And especially in the pregnancy now, I'm a little bit more in the, let me take it a little slower. Mm-hmm. So vinyasa, oh, just a slow vinyasa. <laughs> oh, I love, I love. Are there any new skills that Miss Rona has given you? I mean, I remember we were baking bread. We were planting gardens. I learned how to do my own gel manicures. Ooh, Give yeah. us the scoop. What's your pandemic skills? And just in case we have to enter into the apocalypse, which I feel like we're kind of already in, I just got to know what you bring into the table. <laughs> Ooh, that is such a good question. You know what? I would say I can't think of like a specific skill where, you know, I didn't break the bread. I didn't do any of those things. No learned crafty. I, I was really not into that. I liked watching people's pictures, though. That was very fun. I would say it's just my general optimistic attitude. You know, mm. each day I just had to really keep my loved ones as well as myself happy and feeling joyful because so much anxiety crept up, you know, whether it was the first week or the month after, or again, now we're a whole year into this, uh, just keeping a positive mindset and also being somebody that people can talk to through that anxiety. And um, I think even with my first answer, it's all about that overall health and wellness and finding balance, even when everything feels like it's rocking. Mm, I love that so much. And you know, this last year was a lot. I personally have spent many days ranting and raving about your new book. Thank you. It is exactly the conversation I feel like we need to be having, and not just during Women's History Month, but all the time. Talk to me a little bit about what inspired you to write this book, and why is this conversation the one we need to be having right here, right now? 
I'm all about taking down the erasure of Black women, our stories, our lives, um, the fact that we are so often overlooked, unrecognized, underappreciated. And so with this project, it started with my PhD research. I really thought about all the different layers of erasure that I could break down and challenge in one project. I had a lot of goals. And I first thought about the civil rights movement, how we so often think of it as if it was only led by male leaders um, and nobody else. So I knew I was going to focus somewhere around there to kind of blow up that notion. I then started to think about roles in society that are often overlooked and something that is also unifying for all of us. And I thought about mother, motherhood, mother work, motherhood, and realized that it's just so unrecognized, again, underappreciated. And so many moms, even before I became a mom, I realized this, just really feel like they're not being seen and not being thanked for all the work that they're doing on a daily basis. And so I became really obsessed with telling the stories of mothers. And as soon as I looked into several different civil rights leaders, I found it fascinating to think about the mother-son relationship. Not mm-hmm. that mothers of daughters are any more or less erased, mm-hmm. but it's just different to think about this kind of gender binary that continues to confine us and the ways in which people think, especially young boys, are influenced by the male figure in their life. Um, and I wanted to, again, break that down and think of it from a new perspective. So I looked into, of course, MLK Jr., Malcolm X. And my third that I added, which some people are surprised by, is James Baldwin. For me, he's a kind of natural compliment to them because he brings this perspective of activism that is more about writing and creativity. And he called himself a witness to Mm -hmm. the power of light and the power of truth. And as soon as I started researching his relationship with his mother and how interconnected they were and how she embraced him and all of his friends and all of his loved ones in just such a powerful way, I knew she had to be my, my third choice. So I went with Alberta King, Burtis Baldwin, and Louise Little. And then finally, I also realized that they were all born within six years of each other. And their wow. famous sons were all born within five years of each other. So I could also talk about their lives where each chapter develops a decade of their lives as well as American history through their eyes. I have to say, I love the structure of your book as well. I think you do such an incredible job really weaving in the, it's not the distance between, it is just the stark disparity between the way that Black people see and experience the world and the way that Black people are experienced and seen. And I love how you start off each chapter with like these powerful excerpts or passages from things that people have said that really describe that moment or describe a particular dynamic that is happening in relationship to Black communities. I love that. And the way you weave that then through the chapters that really highlight how these women became women, um, how they were shaped, and then what were the circumstances in which they became mothers, and how did those circumstances then shape the lives of their children? You make a lot of really compelling arguments about how to understand the figures that we exalt in history through these women who shaped them, who gave them their first lens on life, and also gave them the tools to survive in a world that was hell-bent on killing them. Mm -hmm. What might we accomplish if we looked at this more clearly? In other words, what are these women telling us through their own lives and the lives of their children about the possibility 
of futures for Black communities? I really believe that Black motherhood is just so powerful, and it's a really different experience of motherhood and why I wanted to focus very specifically on Black women and the ways in which we give life. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, at the beginning of each chapter, I'm talking about the relationship between dehumanizing treatment that Black women have faced each decade in American history and the ways in which we were not limited or defined by that, that we were aware of it, but we also created life, created our own humanity, recognized our humanity for ourselves because we had no other choice but to do so. When it was being denied from so many different sources, whether that was a child walking down the street and her being called a name or her safety being compromised or her family being murdered or all these attacks that were very real day in and day out for Black people and Black women, uh, I wanted to also confront the pain of that, confront the darkness of it, but also give credit to us for the ways in which we continued to create life, not only through giving birth to children, but through our activism and through our art and through our belief in a future that was different, that there was possibility because we had to believe that. And I think you see that really clearly in the relationship of Black motherhood, where Black women, we hold our children and our loved ones so dear to our heart. We are aware that they are worth every ounce of dignity and respect, just as every other human being is. But we're also aware that they live in a country where that is not always going to be afforded to them. And instead of accepting that as if it's inevitable, as if we have to continue to live this way, instead we focus on the future. And this is why Black women, not only Black mothers, but we love our community so much. And we think about ourselves and our loved ones in this light of possibility. And so we create new systems. We push things to change because they just simply have to. There's no other way. And we saw this really clearly in Georgia with Stacey Abrams and so many other Black women right beside her who made it possible not only to change a state, but to change a nation and a nation that is so influential on the world. And that's just what we've done for years and years and years. And I want people to acknowledge both how hard that is how painful our experience has been when we're not seen in the light that we deserve to be seen and we're not treated the way we deserve to be treated, but also how magnificent it has been for us to recreate systems around us. And then the third part of it, which is what I really end on in the conclusion, is okay, now that you can see how we've found this balance in our lives, don't just congratulate us for being able to do it. Don't just stand in awe clapping because of our strength and our resilience. Now it's time for you to admit the role you might be playing, no matter who you are, in these burdens that Black women are carrying. Again, not only for ourselves, for our families, for our community, but for our country. And what can we do to change policy that makes our lives easier and gives us the opportunities to live on more of an equal footing? You know, I got to ask you, because as you were talking and talking about how we make a way out of no way, how we push forward, even when everything is literally conspiring, right? Not conspiracy theory, but literally conspiring to keep us away from the things that we need to live full and dignified lives. I'm thinking about what everybody is talking about this week, which is the infamous <laughs> Meghan Markle and Oprah Winfrey, honey, the interview, part one, because I yes. do hear there is a part two. 
And this whole notion and experience of Black motherhood and the ways in which we force things to change. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, I, I, I listened to the interview. I feel like I want to watch it again because there were so many so layers many. and nuances. But it's pretty much guaranteed that this is disrupting the way that the monarchy has operated for hundreds of years. And lo and behold, of course it would be a black woman, honey, to shape it, change it, blow the whole thing up and be like, I demand you do this differently. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm just curious to hear your perspective. I know we were chatting about it before we pressed record today, but I'd love to just hear, given your scholarship on black motherhood, on the ways in which Black women are shaping the world and the ways in which the world needs to show up for Black women. What were your thoughts when you were watching that interview and what was going on for you personally, but also in relationship to to this book? So many thoughts. It's going to be hard to summarize them, but I I do want to first say that I found it interesting. I am a big Meghan and Harry fan. I'm grateful for what they're doing to, again, change the monarchy and that they're speaking up about it. And mm-hmm. Megan is not allowing herself to be silenced. But That's I also right. think we have to take a couple steps back and think about her experience, even as a child and even in the way she identifies as what she calls a mixed race woman. She quite often doesn't say black woman, which I find to be interesting. And when she was given the title, I think it's princess of the title that she was given, I really saw in the interview that they both thought everything was going to be fine, it seemed at the beginning, that this was all very shocking to them, that they went into these roles thinking, you know, as long as we're treated just like everybody else is, we're going to be fine. I think they would have been very happy to play these roles in the monarchy. (laughs) And this is the way that anti-Blackness works, that even if you think that you're going to be okay in this system— Those who don't like you are not going to allow you to be. And that's what caused them to wake up. So I do think we have to comment on that because I don't think Megan from the beginning thought she was going to go in trying to take the system down. Um, So it's sort of like whether you are this person who speaks up actively against anti-Blackness or you are not, but you are seen as a Black woman, again, whether you identify that way or not, then you're going to, at some point, have to make a decision and a choice because you're going to be treated the way Black women are treated around the world. And so I just found it, it made it even more credible, their experience, because had they not been treated in this racist way, they would have lived very happily in the roles of the monarchy. You know, even the way they speak about, quote unquote, Commonwealth countries, not as colonies, not as the monarchy (laughs) as the colonizer, there is definitely some missing pieces. And especially for someone, I would say like the two of us who both in and outside of the academy have studied sociology and anthropology and have this kind of understanding of the, you know, theory around race. That's not something that either Megan or Harry went in thinking, okay, we're going to challenge these, you know, break down these systems. But they were forced to become educated in it. But I thought it was fascinating to think and see how uncomfortable they both were with even saying Black. <laughs> even they At no point do they say white supremacy. And the only person I think who said Black is Oprah. At one point she says, oh, because you're Black? Is, like, is that what you're trying to say? 
And so, I mean, I don't know, maybe that's a controversial statement, but I, as much as I do support Megan and I saw obviously so much love and support coming for her, which is amazing. And I want to do that 100%. I think as Black women, we embrace each other whenever it is that some of us have the reckoning or the awakening about our Blackness. Um, I think it's something that we, we still need to address and Um, What she's doing right now is powerful. If I could have a wish for her, it would be that she starts to, I guess, embrace her Blackness a little bit more because everybody else is interpreting her that way. And even other Black women, we were all saying, you know, this is the experience of Black womanhood. And I'm like, Megan at no point said, as a Black woman, this is what's happening to me. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a recognition of what's happening much more largely. And it's not just this individual experience for her, as awful as it was, again, this is the British monarchy. And my final point is, at some point, Harry said something about his family not speaking up against the colonial nature of the headlines. And for someone to say the monarchy is colonial is simply redundant. It's like it's like saying the sky is blue, exactly. water is wet. <laughs> they are the colonizer, the ultimate one. So I the just original, found that fascinating. The original, the OG colonizers. They, they set the standard for colonization. <laughs> Shouldn't have been surprising, y'all. So there were just surprises for them that I was sort yeah. of confused by, but then less so because, again, I believed them. I believed the shock they experienced. I believed the pain because they did not see this coming. I'm fascinated and I mean, I love mothers. So I'm fascinated to hear what Megan's mom thought was going to happen. Hello. That'd be an interesting interview. Can we talk about it, though? I mean, this is this is like a whole other podcast, but I will just say you're spot on. I had the same feelings and emotions. And, you know, I think the moral of the story here is that blackness and anti-blackness operates whether you want it to or not, child, it just does. And so I I found that point that you made very salient, which is I think there's a lot of folks out here, actually, that think they can transcend race. I mean, haven't mm. we just spent the last decade talking about transracialism, which is not a fucking thing? <laughs> Everybody who's <laughs> listening, I need you to understand it's not a thing. Not a you, thing. Only white people get to jump from race to race. Black people don't get to do that, honey, even when you are like the lightest of the light. Mm -hmm. If anybody knows there is black in your family, honey, you are black, 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 black. And it don't matter what you think. It's about (laughs) how the world is categorizing you. You don't have a choice there, honey. There is no freedom in defining yourself in that way. However, there is freedom in redefining what blackness can be and should be for you. Women and black women in particular, but women generally, are often relegated to positions of subordination. We are often the person behind the success of a successful man, but we are rarely, if ever, responsible for it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, You yourself have experienced this in your own life, and you talk about this in the book being the very brilliant, very successful partner of an also very brilliant, very successful, now former youngest mayor ever of Stockton, California. People would often describe you as being the woman behind the man. (laughs) 
I as hate opposed it. to your own person with your own accomplishments, your own viewpoints, your own dreams. What does this practice do to women? And what does this practice do to Black women in particular, emotionally, but also materially? Mm. It's painful and it's dangerous. So from my perspective, and just to give a little context for anybody who doesn't know Michael and I quite as well as you, who is one of our close friends, we met in undergrad and I was only 19 when he decided he was going to run for city council. So he's only 21. Of course, Michael is very young, but everyone always has to remember, I'm always two years younger than him. (laughs) And so when light was kind of shined on us in terms of he was this rising political figure, even from this young age, and now we've been together, we're going on our 10th year together. Um, I was experiencing this as a young Black woman with this high-pitched voice who people interpret to be as somebody who they see as attractive, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I had such a weird experience with this because as soon as I would come to Stockton and I was away from our friends who knew both of us, I became his partner. I became his eye candy. Mm -hmm. I became everybody, you know, some people would call me his trophy girlfriend at the time. It really like straight to my face. I was called a tart. People would comment on my outfits all the time. There was just so much that they had to say about my appearance and clearly believed that I didn't have thoughts of my own, that I was not smart. Um, And they made that very clear to me uh, throughout several different experiences that I'm going to write a book about at some point. Please. Being being someone's political partner from the age of 19 is fascinating, especially as a Black woman. Mm -hmm. And I realized early, at first it felt very personal to me. It felt very, I'm being attacked. I, Anna, am being hurt by this, which reminded me a lot of what we saw in the interview. But as I started to, again, even study this more and spend some more time really reflecting on it, And even thinking about things my mom taught me um, from her experiences in her career and people telling her, you you can't be a lawyer, you're a woman. And she's a white woman, so again, different experiences. But I started to see this isn't just me. This is systemic. This is years in the making. And it's very strategic that they're Mm -hmm. saying these things to me to put me in my place, to remind me of where they think I belong. And that's when I started to speak up about it because it wasn't just for me. It was for all of us who are being erased again, who are being told that we belong in a certain box. And I really finally made the decision when I started teaching. I had a lot of young girls in my classrooms, young men as well, young people generally. Mm -hmm. But especially when young women would ask me things Instead of saying, you know, what are you passionate about, Miss Hanna? They would ask, when are you going to get married to, you know, city councilman Tubbs? And, you know, what are you going to wear at the wedding? Like they were so obsessed with these notions that we were reproducing of, again, very toxic gender roles Mm -hmm. that I just had to do something. I had to say something and really continue to make my own career and my own work about shifting the way we think about womanhood, the way we think about gender roles, the way we especially think and treat, um, think about and treat Black women. Mm. And I, all I can say is it is extremely dangerous. And I speak about this in the book. When someone isn't seen the way they deserve to be seen or recognized in the way they deserve to be recognized, this puts them in a, in a place where we deny them the securities that they deserve. We deny them the resources that they deserve. We 
allocate them to where we believe they should be, and we don't want to help them out of that situation. And I could get much more specific about policy that does that, but it's in so many of our systems and it's ingrained so deeply, not only sexism, not only these really weird notions around gender, but racism as well, classism as well. And I just started to see them play out very personally and had to realize very quickly that it wasn't just affecting me. And that personal experience needed to translate into much larger action. Um, Just for receipts, honey, because I do like to pull a receipt on this show every so often. Can you tell the damn people what your degree is in? Okay. <laughs> uh, you know what? Which degree? You know what I'm saying? Okay. <laughs> Um, No, but my bachelor's is in medical anthropology. My master's is in multidisciplinary gender studies. And my PhD is in sociology. Hello, y'all. Thank you. Okay, (laughs) Tart that. All right. Anywho. I appreciate that. I appreciate that so much. I mean, even now, you know, I thought that the problem at some point, I thought it was that he was just more more visible, you know, that he was this public figure. So maybe people didn't understand it. You like, I tried to excuse it. Even now with this book being out and it was an Amazon bestseller and we're, you know, doing talks and I'm getting people excited about it. And someone said to me the other day, you know, well, what do you want to do? Like when you're older kind of thing. And I was like, you were like, Bish, I have birthed a whole ass child. I have written a whole ass book. Okay. I have multiple degrees. What do you mean? What this do I want to do when I I'm, get older? I'm doing it. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> so it's absurd. It's absurd. The final one, I'll give you an example. I have so many examples of this, but this is the final one. Just so we don't give them too much time. But when Michael and I got engaged, someone said to me, and I was actually in the middle of my PhD and other work that I was doing outside of academia. But someone said, oh, good. Now you'll be busy planning the wedding. You'll have something to do. I wish you could see the the lightning bolts coming (laughs) out of my face right now. I'm so angry. (laughs) Day in and day out. Those are the comments. So yeah, I have enough to write a book. At some point I will and will center how this affects so many of us. It's so complicated too, because it is gender and it is also race. I mean... How do you navigate that? Do you know what I'm saying? Like people, the way folks relate to black people is that if you're successful, you have to be a rapper or some form of entertainer, um, a sports figure, you know, or you get um, deified like many of the men that you wrote about their mothers did, Mm -hmm. which is like pious men. Right. And black women, right, cannot be brilliant, successful, determined, relentless, right? You had to be a tart who hadn't quite figured out what you want to fucking do in life. I can't. I can't and I won't and I shan't. My husband is mentoring me in life and in my career and I'm just so grateful for that. Makes me want to kick puppies and I would never kick a puppy because I have a puppy and he's so cute. There's no reason to kick puppies. I'm all about the future and I'm all about projecting into our futures. And frankly, I was saying to Linda last week that one of the things that drives me crazy about monthly commemorations is that we spend so much time looking back and like 
zero time looking forward. And Mm. that is why these things are so important, right? Because we're trying to chart a new path for those of us who have been left out and left behind. So let me ask you, what might change if we changed the superhero myth that often accompanies the misogyny and the patriarchy in our society? Like, what do we lose from the myth that we need a powerful man to come in and swoop in and save us rather than highlighting the ways in which we have always been the superheroes in our own stories. And those who dare to fly have often been women who teach others how to fly with us, honey. So Mm -hmm. what might change if we change that myth? I think, honestly, the book, when I finally finished it, I was like, this is what can change when we think about the world so differently. So for the three men, the sons who I write about through, you know, talking about their mothers, the mothers being the, the stars of the show and stars of the story. For so long, if you were a fan of them, you knew about their fathers. Whether their fathers were good fathers or awful fathers, you knew about their fathers. And there was this narrative of how influential the man was. And I started to realize that I did more and more of the research that one of the reasons this has happened and continues to happen is most biographies are written by men. And so they're reproducing this notion of we are the stars of the show. We are the superheroes. We were the influential ones. We are the powerful ones. So to come into this work, even unknowingly that I was making a political statement as a woman writing a biography, a Black woman writing a biography about three Black women and changing who the stars of the narrative were, um, I didn't even realize how much could be accomplished by doing that and how healing it is for all of us to have a much more accurate understanding of the role we each play in our communities, that we are all important, that we matter. And that, again, I'm not trying to say by any means all lives matter by any means. So that could have sounded like I was going there. So I need to fix that right now. I would have never thought. I would (laughs) have never thunk it. Just making sure it was getting close. And I'm like, I don't want this taken out of context. Um, But that we, we each have to be acknowledged and, and have this moment of being seen so that we can arrive at a much more inclusive community and country and world um, without this acknowledgement of each of us, without this recognition of our difference and the different ways in which we've each walked through the world, then there's very little we can do in terms of moving forward and in terms of progress. And so I think specifically for women of color to have so often in history been set, even if they were at the forefront, even if they were the ones doing the work, like what I show with these three mothers, um, that they're the ones leading their families, that they're the ones that even are teaching their husbands and tutoring them through their own degrees and through their own experiences um, have been said to be in the background and have been deemed, you know, the supporters of the quote unquote great men, that if we can shift that narrative, then we can start to see all of us more accurately and see our current state as a nation more accurately and start to give equal representation and recognition. I just think this basic concept of recognition translates into action and what can change when we just see things more accurately um, and even introduce more voices, more people. And that feels really vague, but it's just this awakening that I'm already seeing when people read the book and say, 
wow, I'm reading our history completely differently now. And I'm focusing on different aspects of the story, which I think can be really revolutionary. And just like that, it's time for our weekly roundup of all the things Lady Just Ain't Gonna Do this week. And there's a lot. Number one, act like Amazon is a bastion of good works and goodwill. So this week in the news, Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, are fighting for a union. Honey, all the way yes to this, because even though Amazon gets you your things quickly and gets you all the things, the workers are the power behind that. And if you don't do right by the workers, you ain't doing much right at all. So Lady is throwing shade at Amazon this week, which has spent millions of dollars running ads about what a good company they are, while the rest of us engage in a boycott of Amazon this week for refusing to recognize a union. Listen up. The charity you do in the world is what you're supposed to be doing. Isn't your CEO a multi-billionaire? And what does charity have to do with recognizing the right of your employees to form a union for fairness. So don't believe the hype and don't buy nothing from Amazon this week, okay? (laughs) The best way to hit companies like this that make billions of dollars off of us and won't give us basic things in return is to hit them in their reputation and hit them in their pockets. Trust me, you will live without that passion purchase for a little while longer. Your bank account, and the workers, thank you. Now, ballots are due on March 29th, so let's keep the pressure up and let's keep the pressure on. Other things Lady just ain't gonna do this week, hurt people who hurt people. Now, all eyes on Real Housewives of Atlanta this week as the saga with Kenya continues. You know, there's a saying that I'll paraphrase now, which says something like, Take the time to heal your wounds. Otherwise, you'll end up bleeding on people who didn't cut you. And it always pops into my head when I'm watching Kenya. She has all kinds of things that she's carrying around. And instead of working on it, she spills it out all over other people. Lady is glad to see Miss Kenya go to that therapist, honey. And we hope it's not just a one-time thing for the cameras. Now, I can't imagine that she is that enjoyable to be around. And at this point... It's not really enjoyable to watch. So keep working them steps, honey. Please, for all of us. Other things Lady just ain't gonna do this week is voter suppression bills that are proliferating across the nation. In news that is not really news, Republicans are so without any kind of vision or plan that the only thing they can muster energy for is temper tantrums and nonsense. This week, it's voter suppression bills. 230-something of them in 43 states across the nation trying to restrict your right to participate. Now, never mind a contest where the people with the best ideas win. It seems like these days the Republican mandate is, we ain't got no ideas, but we gonna block you from voting for people who got ideas. Y'all know I vote Democrat, but I am not like a Democrat Democrat. But... (laughs) Even I see this as a thin ploy to keep the winning team from winning. 
Not one of these clowns could muster up the energy to bring you any relief from this virus and the fallout that ensued, but they surely can get it up for oppression. Way to make a name for yourselves. Yo mamas must be so proud. Anywho, <laughs> let's move to things that we want more of this week. Number one, President Biden signing the American Relief Act and declaring that vaccines will flow like a mighty stream. <laughs> Look, it is not perfect, of course. And you know, I could I could mark this thing up, honey. But this week, Democrats passed a bill that will move nearly two trillion. Yes, I said trillion dollars to provide much needed relief to communities that have been struggling just to hold on. So here's what's in the bill. Let Lady break it down for you. $1,400 stimulus payments to people who are making up to $75,000 a year, $350 billion in aid to state and local governments, $14 billion for vaccine distribution, and $130 billion for elementary, middle, and high schools to reopen. There's $300 billion for unemployment benefits through September, an expanded tax credit of up to $3,600 per child, $50 billion for small businesses, and $7 billion of that for Paycheck Protection Program loans, $25 billion for small and medium-sized restaurants that were hit hard. This bill also expands eligibility for subsidies to purchase health care under the Affordable Care Act, and it provides incentives for states to expand Medicaid under the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, by having the federal government pay for it. That's incredible. Now, here's what was not in the bill. Raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour, monthly stimulus checks until the pinini is over, or an extension of eviction moratoriums. Now, after signing into law a massive relief bill, President Joe Biden got up on the telly, honey, and announced that the vaccine will flow like a mighty stream. I love saying that opening up eligibility to all adults by May. Now, Lady believes it'll be a lot sooner. Now, Trump kept them vaccines at a trickle because that's just the kind of person he is. He's a trickler, okay? <laughs> but now that supply has increased, Lady believes that vaccines will be available to everyone way before May, honey. Now, our work is to make sure that A, we keep pushing for bold solutions to big problems, and B, we ensure that vaccine distribution is approached from a racial justice perspective, ensuring that the distribution and accessibility is equitable. In other more simpler words, don't just have that thing at the white people Walgreens. Bring that thing to the hood stores too, okay? <laughs> so if you are ready to keep pushing with us, go to black2thefuture.org and sign on to our Build Back Boulder mandate. Other things that Lady loves this week is Meghan Markle and Harry exposing the monarchy in detail. Now, look, y'all, I know this was all over the news this week, and I got to be honest, I am still not quite sure what to make of all this. In case you missed it, Oprah snagged the exclusive interview with Harry and Meghan, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, who broke it all down about how the crown was losing their fucking minds about a black woman being a part of it. So that's that on that. Now, I thought it was brave, if you ask me. I thought it was brave to share that kind of reckoning 
in a world that values glitz and glam and celebrity. I'm sure a lot of people were like, girl, you just left though? Now, at the same time, it's a telling story about how colonialism works, how whiteness works, and I, for one, am glad that it's out there in the world. And yes, let me say this. I am here for white-on-white crime, so you know what? (laughs) Yes, I watched that two-hour interview. I'll probably watch it again. Oprah is the greatest of all time, and she knew exactly how this was finna play out because, well, because she's Oprah. And yes, we do have a fascination with kings and queens, and not just the white ones if we're telling the whole ass truth. So anywho, (laughs) lady needs more time to gather her thoughts on this, y'all, but... First thought, best thought, I feel clearer than ever about what happened to Princess Diana. When Megan started talking about the firm, honey, <laughs> woo! Look, I know Diana was pleased, okay? It's got to all come out. Other things Lady Loves this week, our little pod that could is gaining traction on these Apple Podcast charts. Now, the charts change all the time, but today we reach number five with a bullet, in the category of personal journal podcasts in the United States. Now, that's not bad for a show that's free 99, right? Apple Podcasts has been so good to us this month as we are featured on the homepage in their We Lead the Way collection with a bunch of other badass women-led pods. Now, I'll say it again. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help keep us going And they help us keep climbing the charts. (laughs) Hannah, tell the people where they can catch up with you on the socials. And um, what can we expect from the next phase of this book? Okay, so first you can go to the threemothersbook.com and you'll find all the information you need on me there. And my handles are both Honest T on both Twitter and on Instagram. You see what I did there? It's about giving the truth. Honesty. (laughs) And um, for the book, I think that we're going to see something visual for it soon. Maybe a movie, maybe a limited series, maybe a docuseries. I don't know, but something's coming. There's a lot of conversations. And then I'm just going to keep writing. I have so much more to talk about, um, both in fiction and nonfiction. So I'm just excited to really have arrived as a writer and to continue to do my work. I love it. I'm so happy that, yes, you have arrived as a writer. And thank thank you you for writing this book. It's incredible. And thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. You are so wonderful. And thank you for everything that you do each day. amazing. That is all for Lady Don't Take No. But I'll be back here every single Friday morning to accompany you where you used to have a commute. We appreciate you joining us. And please, let's keep the conversation going. Tell us what's on your mind. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you ain't gonna take no more of. On Twitter, we're at Lady Take. On Insta, we're at Lady Don't Take No Pod. We're also on Facebook at Lady Don't Take No Podcast by Alicia Garza. We post ways to do something about the things you hear about on this show all over our social media. So if we got you amped up today, check out the socials to find out how you can take action. And a special shout out to Jahari Farrar, 
for making sure that the people get what they need from our socials. Jahari, we appreciate you. Now, please subscribe and write us a review and let the people know what you heard here today. Our incredible producer is Phil Circus. Our wonderful theme is Bilaterix. And this pod is supported by the Black Futures Lab. I'm your host, Alicia Garza. Remember, stay on Amazon's ass and keep the pressure on because all workers deserve a union. Colonialism gonna colonial no matter who you are, honey. So grab your popcorn because white-on-white crime is at an all-time high and heal those wounds. Heal those wounds before you bleed on people who didn't cut you. That's right. I said it. Because lady don't take no. Lady don't take no shit. Insist on respect the sister. Walk around like a woman. Is. She won't speak less of something worse. Singing don't play. The girl take herself so serious. People stare curious. Got a natural way. Her hips sway furious. Like a luxurious. Carries herself.